Today's Bible reading comes from John 6, verse 53 to 70. You'll find that in your bulletin, um, or if you have an app on your phone, or if you brought your Bible. Um, I'll give you a few minutes to find the passage. Here is the word of the Lord. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you will have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your, fa- your forefathers ate manna and died, but he who feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue at Capernaum. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, This is a hard teaching. Who can accept this? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, Does this offend you? What if you see the Son of Man ascend, ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit, and they are life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe, and who would betray him. He went on to say, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the word of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Then Jesus replied, Have I not chosen you, the twelve, yet one of you is a devil? He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who, through the one of the twelve, though one of the twelve, was later to betray him. Again, this is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Bryce. Sorry I didn't turn the light on for you beforehand. Oh well. Well, now I've messed this thing up. Nothing to see here, people. There we go. Okay. Uh, we are we are currently in a in a, a Lenten series, for those of you who are guests, just to catch you up on what we're up to uh, recently. We're in a, a Lenten series. Basically, using this time of Lent to do what Lent is meant to do, focus our attention on our relationship with Jesus Christ. And we've been thinking through our relationship with Jesus Christ, what it means to have a relationship with Jesus Christ, and, and, and why our, our relationship with Jesus is often so very complicated and complex. We've talked about this before, how uh, for many of us, it's not like uh, our relationship with Jesus is just always awesome and we're feeling very close to Him and we're willing to be sold out for Jesus and we'll do whatever He tells us to do and, and, that's, and we just love that. Um, most of us, we, we go through highs and lows in our relationship with Him. Sometimes it's hot, sometimes it's cold. It's like relationships, right? Like with anybody else. The only difference is, is that our relationship with Him is with a perfect person so anytime there's a problem in the relationship, it's our fault. 
It's just kind of how it is, right? And so we've been thinking through our relationship with Jesus and trying to, trying to understand how do you evaluate it well? And we've been doing it through the lens of Jesus' relationship with Peter, one of his apostles. Because if anybody had a up and down, hot and cold relationship with the Savior, it was Peter. Remember, Peter was called personally by Jesus to be one of his disciples and Peter went, you know, uh, and then last week we saw how uh, Peter amazingly uh, had the insight given to him by God himself to understand that Jesus was the Christ, the, the one who had been sent to save his people. And then in the very next breath, Peter makes a huge mistake and tells Jesus, no, you're not going to go to the cross. You're not going to die on that cross. I will not let that happen. Don't talk that way. And Jesus rebukes him with like one of the worst rebukes he, he ever laid on anybody. He says, get behind me, Satan. So Peter is this guy who's got this very complicated relationship with Jesus. And we're looking at, um, at what it's like to follow Jesus through that relationship he has with Peter. And remember, Jesus makes these radical claims over and over again. So we saw last week, he said, you you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. And he goes on to tell uh, the people listening to him that whoever wants to save his life in this world must lose it, but if you lose your life for my sake, you will find it. He says these extreme statements all over the New Testament. And you know, is extremely concerned with this issue, that people are following him for the right reasons. Or or to put it another way, he's very concerned that people not discover at some point along the way that they're actually not really following Jesus even though perhaps they think they are. So for example, he tells this story uh, about a man who built a house, uh, two men who built houses, and one built his house on sand and the other built his house on rock, and everything looked fine to, uh, uh, until a storm came along, and then boom, the house on sand gets uh, knocked over. Or he tells this story about a sower who goes out and he sows seed, and that seed is the gospel, the good news. What's the good news? Jesus lived the life I should have lived and died the death I should have died. That's the gospel. That's the good news. This guy goes out and he's sowing seed like a farmer and and the seed is supposed to be the gospel. And he sows it on four different types of soil. And those four different types of soil basically represent four different types of hearts. And at the end of the story, only one type of soil actually receives that seed. That is, one type of heart actually receives that gospel and bears good fruit. And then, of course, there's the man who says, Jesus, I want to follow you. I'll go wherever you want me to go. I'll do whatever you want me to do. And Jesus turns to him and says, foxes of holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. In other words, do you know what you're getting into if you're going to follow me? He's very concerned about this issue of what you could call true discipleship versus False discipleship. And this text really brings that to the fore in a powerful way. We're going to look at this text together. Um, You can follow along an outline on the back of your bulletin in case that's helpful for you to to be able to know where we're going and and, uh, where we're at at any given moment. We're going to look at what is discipleship. 
We're going to identify false discipleship. We're going to understand what true discipleship is, and then we're going to apply this at the very end, hopefully. If, you're, if you have questions, write them down. Perhaps at the end of the message, we'll have time for you to ask them. All right, here we go. The question is discipleship. What is, true, or what is discipleship? Not true discipleship yet, but what is discipleship? Look at verse 60 in the passage. Verse 60 of this passage says, On hearing it, many of his disciples said, This is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? And when it says many of his disciples, it's not talking about just the 12, right? It's not just talking about uh, the inner circle of disciples. It's, refer- excuse me, it's referring to all the disciples. These are all the people who had been following Jesus in his ministry up until this point. You could say that this is sort of the beginnings of what you could call the church. It's the whole church. And they say this teaching that Jesus is giving us is a really hard teaching. What's the hard teaching? You go up the passage to verse 53 where Jesus says this, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up at the last day. What is that all about? What is Jesus saying? That's, that's a hard teaching to accept, right? And it's not just hard to understand, although that's part of it. It's very much hard to accept, hard to receive, hard to say, okay, if that's what it is, I'm good with that. What, what is Jesus talking about here when he talks about eating his flesh and drinking his blood? Here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying to these, these people, I must be your meat and drink. What is, what is your meat and your drink? Food, right? The basics of food that keep you alive. The basics that, that keep you ticking. The basics that keep you going. They give you energy. They, they energize you and enable you to, th- to, to live, to, to do these things. Jesus is saying, that's what I must be to you. Here's the question that Jesus is, is posing when he says, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. He's saying this. He's asking you this. What is your meat and drink? What's the thing that keeps you going? What's the thing that you get up in the morning for? What's the thing that you're living for? Is it, is it your career? Is your career the thing that gets you going each and every day? Is it money? Is it cash? Is it, is it you know, a, a, a big bunch of RRSPs that you're, you're putting together for your retirement? Or is it, is it comfort? Is it... How many of you know Loverboy, the band? Everybody's working for the weekend. Is that what you're living for? Is that your meat and drink? Getting to the weekend where you can finally kick back and chill and escape the pressures of the work week? What is it that keeps you going? The story is as old as time, right? You get this athlete And they're really good at what they do. And they work really hard and they make it to the professional ranks and they become a superstar and they make loads of money and they're recognized on the street and the kids want their autograph at the stadium and it goes on and on. And then time catches up to them and they have to retire or an injury comes comes along and it's a career-ending injury and you read the stories about how they get depressed. Sometimes even suicidal. 
because they've lost their meat and drink. They don't know who they are anymore. Look at the quotes on the, on the front of the bulletin. It's a movie quote day here at Grace Valley. Two great movies, by the way, uh, if you haven't seen them. The one is from Harold Abrams uh, from Chariots of Fire. You know, the, he's going to run in the 1924 Olympics in the 100-meter dash, and he's going to run for Britain. And this is what he says at one point. He says, and now in one hour's time, I will be out there again. I will raise my eyes and look down that corridor four feet aside with only 10 lonely seconds to justify my existence. But will I? Who he is, what keeps him going is wrapped up in winning the 100-meter dash. And then, of course, Rocky, right? You know Rocky Balboa? I know, I'm dating myself big time now. Anybody here under 25 is like, what? You know Sylvester Stallone? You're still like, who's that? There's a scene in the first Rocky movie where Rocky says to his girlfriend, Adrian, he says, all I want to do is go the distance. Nobody's ever gone the distance with Creed, that's the opponent. And if I can get that distance, you see, and that bell rings and I'm still standing, I'm going to know for the first time in my life, see, that I weren't just another bum from the neighborhood. That's it. And Jesus is saying, that's got to be me. Jesus is saying, I'm not here just to be your teacher just to be your counselor, just to be your advisor, or even, frankly, just to be your friend, even if it's your best friend. That's still not enough. I need to be the son of your solar system. You need to revolve your existence around me. This is absolute authority in your life. This is, if I don't have him, I die. If you don't get your food, if you don't get your drink, I don't know how many days you can last without food, but apparently you can only last without hydration for like three days and you are dead. If you are not getting him, if he is not that to you, Jesus says, you don't really have me. Now here's what's interesting, and it comes out in this passage. There's two types of people that understand that that's what Jesus demands from us. The first is the non-Christian. You see, a non-Christian hears Jesus say, you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood, or you don't have any part of me, and that person says, huh, I don't want part of that. The non-Christian says, I see it. I see what Jesus is demanding. I see how hard it is. I see that he is saying that he is deserving of all my devotion, that I'm supposed to submit my life entirely to him. And they say, no, I don't want any part of that. I don't give anybody that kind of a priority in my life, in my existence. That's crazy talk. So non-Christians, thoughtful non-Christians anyway, understand this. And you know what? Real Christians understand this well, uh, as well. They, they look at the same claims and the same demands and they say, well, that's going to be hard. That's going to be hard. But listen, if Jesus is who he says he is, he's made claims to being the Messiah. He's claimed to be God in the flesh. Not just a representative of God, not just a prophet pointing to God. He's saying God, the one who made the universe, who, who actually put together my body in my mother's womb and also made the laws of physics and also made the seas and the oceans and everything in them and the mountains and the trees. That God is standing right in front of me in the flesh, in human form. That person 
is making a radical claim, but, but he also isn't just saying, because I'm God, you have to give yourself to me. He's also saying, because I'm your redeemer, you have to give yourself to me. He's saying, look, I went to the cross. I went and died on the cross in your place. I took all the, the judgment of God that you deserve for your rebellion against him. I took it on myself. I did that before any of you were born. I did that for you before you even knew a thing about who I was because I love you, because I cherish you, because I delight in you. I did that for you. And the real Christian sees that, looks at the cross, understands its message, and says to themselves, this is going to be hard, giving myself to that person, just giving it all up for him and following him wherever he says I should go. That person says, it seems crazy, but but in a sense, it's, it's really the only response that makes sense. Look, I I don't know your spiritual, I don't know everybody here, and I don't know your spiritual status. All I know is, is that if, does it not make sense to you that if a being came to you right now in the flesh and could prove, and I don't, let's just put, put aside what the proof would need to be. Maybe it's different for everyone, but if he could prove, or she could prove, or whatever could prove, I am God, I am the supreme being. I made you, I I know everything about you, and I control the entire universe. What I want you to do is live for me and do what I tell you and trust that I will take care of you. Does it not make sense that if they could convince you that that's who they are, does it not make sense that your response would be, okay? Doesn't that, doesn't that make sense? A real Christian understands that that makes sense. That it doesn't mean that they can do it so easily, okay? And this is what you need to understand. True Christians and non-Christians both understand what true discipleship is, but the, the, the true Christian also understands that it's not something that just kind of happens overnight, that you just kind of... Flip the switch and boom, now I'm following God wherever he calls me and I'm living my life for Jesus under all circumstances and it's never a struggle. Oh no. They understand that basically the rest of their lives is doing battle with their desire to rule themselves rather than give themselves to this Savior. All right, so that's discipleship. What's false discipleship? How do you identify false discipleship? How do you understand if you're maybe not there? Look at verse 66. It says, From this time many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. And again, it's talking about from, from this grand group of disciples, what we're calling the church. It's not just talking about the 12. It's talking about this crowd of people who had been following Jesus and witnessing his miracles and saying that, that they, that they want to be part of his movement. And it says that from this time on, after they had heard this teaching, they're turning their back on him and they're no longer, in, no longer following him. Why? Well, because of the demand, Right? See, here's, here's basically false discipleship. It's, it's, you can come to church, and you can even come to church very regularly, and you can go through all the motions, and you can kind of meet the community expectations, right? We even actually, as a church, Grace Valley, if you look at our membership document, we have community expectations. So I'm not saying 
the expectations are bad, okay? But you kind of do that, but you don't, what you don't do is give yourself entirely to him. It's not always immediately clear that you haven't done that. But eventually, what happens is, is that God will call you to obedience in a certain place and you will refuse to give it up. Don Carson, who is a, a great theologian and, a, and writer, he, he writes this. He says, this is, this is false discipleship. He says, I would like to buy about $3 worth of the gospel, please. Not too much. Just enough to make me happy, but not so much that I get addicted. I don't want so much gospel that I learn to really hate covetousness and lust. I certainly don't want to cherish self-denial and contemplate missionary service in some alien culture. I want ecstasy, not repentance. I want transcendence, not transformation. I would like to be cherished by some nice, forgiving, broad-minded people. But I myself don't want to love those from different races, especially if they smell. I would like enough gospel to make my family secure, my children well-behaved, but not so much that I find my ambitions redirected or my giving too greatly enlarged. I would like about $3 of the gospel, please. You see, that's, that's the danger of false discipleship. You got a bit, Right? But you're not, you're not going to give it all. A perfect biblical example of that is a guy named Saul. In the Old Testament, there's a book called Samuel. In 1 Samuel 15, there's a character named Saul. He was the king of Israel. God comes to Saul and he says, Saul, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go attack, attack the Amalekites. And I want you to wipe them out. And when I say wipe them out, I mean all of them and just... I know that that sounds crazy and hard to understand for some of you, but put that part aside. Just understand that they were supposed to be entirely wiped out and, and all their stuff was supposed to be destroyed, all their animals and all their goods, etc. They were supposed to leave nothing behind. Samuel or Saul says, okay, he goes out, he attacks, he destroys almost the entire people, but he takes the king captive. He doesn't kill the king and... He destroys a lot of the stuff, but he keeps the sheep and lambs and, and bulls and, 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 and prized animals. And Samuel, the prophet, comes to him and he says, Samuel says to Saul, so uh, did you attack the Amalekites and did you destroy them? Yes, I, I destroyed them completely. And then Samuel says, but I hear bleeding sheep and I hear lowing cows. What's up with that? And, and Saul says something interesting. He says, well, look, look, I did most of what God said. And I took those animals and, and, and those sheep and stuff because what I want to do is I want to make a sacrifice to God to give thanks for the great victory that we had. And amazingly enough, through Samuel, God says to him, to obey is better than sacrifice. Saul, listen. I want you, not some of your stuff, I want you to give yourself completely to me, not to pay lip service to me. I don't want you to obey me when it makes sense to you and to the degree to which it makes sense to you. You're either all in or you're not in. You haven't relinquished control. And you see, friends, this is the danger. This is my danger, okay? All right, I, little, 
This morning, I tore a strip off a kid, one of my kids, and it was wrong. It was totally wrong. And if I had tried to tell myself, well, look, you know, I'm obeying you, God. I'm a preacher. I'm going to church to preach your word. And I am going to, uh, I'm going to make sure that I take that kid for a walk later today and make them feel better and put my hand around a, uh, on their shoulder and pat them on the back. When all the while God is telling me obedience is going to your kid and seeking their forgiveness for the sin you have committed against them. But I don't do that. Because it's not convenient or it doesn't make sense or I'm justifying it because I didn't feel good this morning and because I got a lot of pressure on me to, to, to come to church and make sure everything's working right and they were giving me a bit of a hard time. I am not obeying. So friends, if you're, if you're obeying in all the places that you want to obey but you're not giving yourself up in the place where he calls you to give yourself up, I'm just telling you, don't kid yourself. That's not true discipleship. I don't have time to give you all the examples of false discipleship that are out there, but at the heart of it, at the bottom of it, it's basically rejecting his authority. So what is true discipleship? Very quickly. Last point, what is it? What does it mean to have the right reason to follow Jesus. Not just blindly, okay? Jesus never, if you're thinking, oh, you just want me to blind me, like blindly give myself over to him? Oh, no, 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 no. Jesus doesn't call you to blindly give yourself over to him. He has good reasons for you to give yourself over to him. And we see that in this text. In verse 68, Peter shows us what true discipleship is when he says, Lord, Jesus says, okay, verse 67, Jesus says, you do not want to leave me too, do you? Jesus asked the 12, so he's talking to the inner circle. And Jesus, Peter speaks on behalf of them, and he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. There's three parts here to the true discipleship that Jesus or that Simon Peter displays. First thing is, is he says, look, to whom shall we go? It, it's almost, it's almost, in my picture of it anyway, it's almost like a bemused response. Like, where else can we go? Um, what he's showing is, is he's showing his absolute powerlessness, right? I don't know how familiar you are of, of, with the 12-step program. Some of you are very familiar with the 12-step program. Uh, the very first of the 12 steps is admit your powerlessness over your addiction and that your life has become unmanageable. Here's the thing. You do that, you've already come a very, very, very long way. Because you see, the root of all of our problems is I can do it. Powerless. All our lives, we're being taught, we can do this or we got this, right? You're teaching your four-year-old or five-year-old to tie their shoelaces and they whack your hand away and they say, I got this, I can do it, right? You're talking to your teenager about the choices they've made with the certain friends that are having an influence on them and they're saying, I know, I know, you don't like them, but I know them better than you do and I got this. I can handle it, right? Sorry, I mean, you're a whiny adult too, but, <laughs> Right? 
And when you're an adult, when you, come, when you think of religion, you think of faith, and you say, well, all I really need is I need a little bit of education, a little bit of teaching, a little bit of direction, but uh, maybe a little bit of self-help. But really, I, underneath it all, you think to yourself, I got this. And the gospel comes along, and Jesus, the Son of God, comes to you, and he says, you don't got this. You're a failure. You're a sinner. You have mucked up your life. And yes, lots of bad things have happened to you, but you have done really bad things with the bad things. And you've made things a lot worse. You need a power outside of yourself. And that's essentially what Peter is doing. It's almost like a shrug. Where else can we go? And if you stop there, where else can I go? If you just stop there, you end up like the, 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 the sports athlete and you just despair because you don't know of anywhere else to go. But Peter doesn't stop there. He says, you have the words of eternal life. It's the original 12-step program, okay? There's a way out. You don't have this. I am powerless. But step two says, I realize that there is a power greater than myself that can restore me to sanity. And step three says that I will make a decision to turn my life over to the will and care of God. And that's what Peter is saying. When he says, you have the words of life, he's saying, I'm powerless, but you aren't. And, and you've got to picture the scene, okay? Jesus has all these people around, and he says, I must be your meat and drink. You must eat my flesh and drink my blood. And people go, whoa, that's kind of crazy. Uh, you want, it's all or nothing with you, huh, Jesus? And slowly, perhaps not immediately, but slowly, like the crowd starts to thin out, and people just kind of shuffle in their feet and kind of, slowly sort of walk away a little bit, maybe turn, and then they hightail it to the car, right? And here's the 12. They're watching this happen. And they're seeing the crowd get thinner and thinner. And maybe some of their friends are kind of shuffling off. And they're like, hey, hey, Tom, Tom, you? Tom kind of turns and off he goes. And then it's Jesus and his disciples. Maybe that's not exactly how it went. And Jesus turns to them and it's all that's left and he says, you don't want to leave too, do you? Peter's like, maybe we do, but where are we going to go? You're the one with the words of eternal life. There is nowhere else to go. Now notice, Peter and the rest of the disciples, they're not saying, look, we got our act together. We're with you, Jesus. We're We're all in. Or even, I understand entirely what this is all about. Yes, you must be my meat and drink. And you are. I get it. And I'm with you, Jesus. No, it's, it's basically, there's no alternative. Martin Lloyd-Jones once said that if, if you have any alternatives to Jesus Christ, you've not yet come to Jesus Christ. Peter doesn't even sound super excited. <laughs> But lastly, he says, you know what? I'm with you because what he says, the last thing in verse 69 is he says, you are the Holy One of God. There's only one other place in the Gospels where we hear this term described and attributed to Jesus and it happens in Mark chapter 1 and you know who says it? A demon. True Christian, non-Christian. Demons are probably non-Christians, hey? 
but they recognize you are the Holy One of God. You are God. The demon wanted nothing to do with Jesus. He's calling him Holy One of God, saying, get out of here, leave us alone. Have you come to persecute us? And, the, and Peter is saying, you are the Holy One of God. You're the only one we have left. I need you. Last point. Now what? <laughs> you know, application is the hardest part of preaching. It's pretty easy to retell a passage in a story. It's pretty hard to explain what it means to do with it. What do I tell you to do with it? I don't know what you do with that. What do you do with that? I feel like just saying, be Peter and stand there and go, I got nowhere else to go. But what is it that finally enables you to take that leap? And this is for the non-Christian in the room and for the Christian both, okay? Some of you need to take the leap to trusting Jesus with your life for the first time. Many of us, all the rest of us, have to take the leap to trust him for the millionth time. We all have to. And what is it that's going to do it? Well, in verse 65 and in verse 70, Jesus says some pretty amazing things. He went on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. In verse 70, have I not chosen you, the twelve? See, the gospel is amazing in this. If you're here this morning, you're not here by accident. If your heart is stirred with an interest in Jesus, if you, if you have any attraction to him at all, the Holy Spirit is already at work in you. He's already calling you. And he's calling you this season to direct your thoughts to the cross. To see on the cross that this Jesus, who doesn't come at you and say, obey me, follow me, fall on your knees, I am your Lord, ah, 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 you know. But he says to you, do you want to leave too? With such gentleness, inviting you to give yourself to him. He says this season, look at the cross. Look at how I gave myself my everything, all that I am, all that I have. I put it there for you first so that you can trust that when you give yourself, your all, your everything to me, I'm not going to crush you with my authority. I'm going to unleash you into great joy and great service with it. That's the wonder of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.